the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the legendary vocal group, The Deltones. We take a look at the early days of their career. In particular, this episode pays tribute to their lead singer, Noel Weidenberg, who was tragically killed in a car accident. He was just 23 years old and at the time, one of the country's biggest pop stars. The carefree thinking and lifestyle that came with the first wave of rock and roll in Australia was shattered forever by the singer's death. Our special guest is the Deltones bass man extraordinaire, Ian Peewee Wilson. Peewee speaks candidly about one of the darkest periods in his life, and we really thank him for his openness and honesty. However, don't be mistaken, it's not all doom and gloom. This episode celebrates the incredible journey of the Deltones. They played an important part at the very start of rock and roll in Australia, and we wanted to pay tribute to Noel and his amazing voice. When I was a little boy, my daddy used to say to me, son, we got a lot of big plans and a lot of hard work to be done. Go get your marbles, put them in the house, tear down your castles in the sand. Come with your pappy to the cotton patch, a little dirt on your hands Get a little dirt on your hands, boy Get a little dirt on your hands If you wanna grow up to be a big, big man You gotta get a little dirt on your hands Gotta get a little dirt on your When rock and roll first exploded into the lives of Australians in the 1950s, it was one of the biggest cultural shifts in the country's history. It was just a few short years since Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock had created a teenage revolution, and no longer did the stuffy jazz or cabaret acts rule the airwaves. It's undisputable that rock and roll was born in the USA. However, it wasn't long before we started to produce our own homegrown stars. The most notable of these rockers were Johnny O'Keefe and Cole Joy and standing right alongside them as hit-making pioneers are the Deltones. Remarkably, the group has survived more than 60 years in show business, and to think the oldies of the day were still telling kids that rock and roll was a passing phase, give it a year or two and it will be gone for good. Against the advice of many, and luckily for us, the Deltones quit their day jobs and dived into the deep end. Within six months of forming, the group was standing in front of more than 10,000 frenzied kids at the Sydney Stadium. A chance meeting at the local surf club in the Sydney suburb of Bronte between Pee Wee and Noel saw the beginning of one of Australia's most important and much-loved vocal groups. Yeah, we did. Uh, the original lead vocalist, the late Noel Widerberg, and myself were both patrolling members of the club. Noel was a great body surfer, and um, I took to the, uh, to the Malibu, as we call them in those days. Uh, and... Um, uh, we, we were definitely uh, full on and, and dedicated to the surf club movement. And so uh, I was singing one night at a, um, at a social 
Uh, I wasn't singing on stage. I was doing it, um, I don't know, I must have been out of my mind, uh, which is the only time I used to break into vocals back then. But I was singing, uh, and Noel came over and started to harmonise. And this was the first time I'd heard harmony in, in, in the roar, acoustically. It made a big impression on me. I wasn't singing down in my, in my boots like I was later on when I, the deltones really formed together, but it was natural for me to go down there. However, at that time, I was just singing melody lines in the mid-range. But when uh, Noel put this harmony to the song, I, I, it just blew me away, and, and, and I found myself siding up to him at uh, some of the socials, because it gave me more confidence to break into a song just around in our group of uh, people who loved, who loved music. And then it grew from there. Um, we never, ever performed on stage at all, but we went to a, a dance at the surf club, and um, Warren Lucas was there, and Warren was in a group, the Sapphires, um, and a great group too, though, an excellent group. And um, he sided up to us, and we, we started to do some harmonies with him. And then he went off for a holiday over the Christmas period and came back and introduced us to Brian Perkins, who was in a group, I, can remember, I think their name was the Teddy Bears. We had that sound. Now, once we heard, went from the three-part to the four-part harmony, it was just a miracle. And the place we, we would go to was in the, uh, the surf club shower room, which had the lovely uh, acoustic reverberation. That sound was just absolutely marvellous. I just loved it. And so did the rest of the guys. So we said, hey, why don't we do something about this? Australian music legend Cole Joy, who has his own episode in this series of awesome Aussie songs, remembers meeting the Deltones for the first time. We had a dance at the Bronte Surf Club every Sunday night and uh, one night these four blokes come in and said, we've got a group, um, will you listen to us? Now the dressing room at the surf club was where they kept all the ropes and surfboards and everything like that. So in the break, they came down and sung for us. There was this tall, gangly-looking bloke called Wilson, Ian Wilson, and, and uh, Noel Weiderberg was the lead singer. And they sung, but Noel had a, his own... He had a sound about him. Officially formed in January 1959, the Delis, as they would become known to their legion of many fans, got their first paid gig of sorts when a local King's Cross cafe owner paid the boys for their musical talents in spaghetti and beer. Six months after deciding to put a group together and having played just a handful of live gigs, the Deltones decided the best way to get on radio was to barge into the studio of leading Sydney disc jockey Bob Rogers while the DJ was live on air. Well, uh, when we say Barsden, it's not far wrong because what happened was, uh, Noel, this was Noel Weiderberg's uh, incredible brashness. Um, he said, listen, we've got to get ourselves a recording. So let's find a strategy to, to get on record. And he said, well, the best strategy is let's go and, uh, and see one of these disc jockeys, uh, Bob Rogers, who was the man at the time. There was only two at the time, Bob Rogers and uh, I think Lawsy was on there and a fellow called Tony Withers. However, Bob Rogers was the man of the day. And he was getting his recordings, uh, he was getting before anybody got them because he had uh, an entourage of uh, flight stewards who were flying in on Qantas and bringing these recordings out to him. And he was getting them first off. So he was the man of the moment getting these records, the American records, before anybody else. And he was playing Australian records. He was quite sympathetic to the Australian music as well. And of course, he knew Johnny O'Keefe. We got in, at that time, no security, got through. The red light, we could see the red light was on in the, in the studio. Nobody said a word to us. He was four guys just barging into the studio. And we opened those big heavy doors of, of the studio and we came into the studio and he's looked up. He was doing a commercial at the time, if I remember rightly. And he just looked at us with a quizzical look. 
and then the commercial would offer you they used to use the turntable at that time and put on the turntable and uh, put a record on and said, what, 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 what do you want? And we said, oh, we're a vocal group. We call ourselves the Delta. We introduced ourselves, and uh, we've got a song we want, want, want you to hear. And he's going, oh, okay. And this was a surprise to us, Sheldon, because he said, okay, sing it. So we sang Why, the, the Noel Weidenberg's song. And off we went with this, this song. And we got about four bars, maybe, maybe eight bars into the song. And he just said, held up his hand. Stop, like a like a halt sign, and we stopped and froze on the spot. And he dived for the phone and picked up the phone, and he uttered these words, prophetic words: "Lee, I think I've got your vocal group for your your backing vocal group for Tab Hunter." And then hung up. The Lee that Rogers was talking to on the other end of the phone line was Australia's biggest promoter and the man credited with bringing rock and roll to our shores, Lee Gordon. The expat American single-handedly established our international touring circuit. Before Lee Gordon started promoting his big shows, there was virtually no chance that any overseas star would bother to travel down under to perform, especially one in the very prime of their career. Then out of nowhere, here comes Lee Gordon, touring the likes of Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole and Louis Armstrong. Highlighting how backwards a country were at this time, when touring Louis Armstrong in South Australia, Gordon's right-hand man, Alan Heffernan, could not find a decent hotel that would allow Armstrong to book in. The reason was because Louis was black. The various hotels knew who he was. Yes, Louis Armstrong, perhaps the greatest jazz trumpeter of all time. But no. Sorry. Unfortunately, they could not possibly allow Mr. Armstrong to stay at their esteemed establishment. Despite having to spend the night in some flea-bitten dive of a South Australian hotel, Louis knew all Aussies didn't hold this racist attitude, and mostly wherever he went, he was given the respect and admiration he rightly deserved. Thankfully, he still thought we were part of the wonderful world. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The arrival of rock and roll in Australia can be traced back to a single moment in time when the movie The Blackboard Jungle was released into cinemas across the country. While the movie wasn't that hot, and it didn't have much of a plot, what the movie did have was the song Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. The majority of Australian teenagers first heard rock music while seated in the darkness of a cinema, when Haley and his band came blasting out of the surround sound speakers and it blew their collective minds. The genie was now out of the bottle, Rock and roll had arrived and there would be no turning back. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. But you should back so join me home.
If hearing Bill Haley and the Comets in the cinema sent the kids wild, imagine their response just a few months later when Lee Gordon toured Haley and his Comets around the country. Other acts Gordon brought here is a who's who of music. Little Richard, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash and the Everly Brothers, just to name a few. Okay, that's enough of the history lesson. I'm sure you get the drift. Before the arrival of Lee Gordon, there was nothing. Because of Lee Gordon, we now had rock and roll royalty on our stages, in front of our music fans shaking the conservative views of 1950s Australia. Now the scene has been set, back to the Deltones. When Bob Rogers recommended the boys as the backing group for Tap Hunter, he had just got the gripper gig with an American movie star and one of the biggest Hollywood heartthrobs of the day. Springboarding off his fame as a star of the silver screen, Tap had released a couple of records and they'd become number one hits around the world. So naturally, at the height of his fame, Lee had booked Hunter to headline one of his big shows. After the initial excitement and joy of picking up such a prestigious gig subsided, the realisation for the Deltones kicked in. Now just six months after being paid in spaghetti and beer at their first gig, here they were, about to perform in front of more than 10,000 screaming fans at Sydney Stadium. They need not have worried, as they were soon to find out when meeting Tab at the rehearsal for the show, that when it came to performing live, compared to the American movie star, the Deltones were showbiz veterans. Tab had some success with his recordings. Um, he had Red Sails in the Sunset, a, a, a classic. Young Love, which was a pop song. I'm not too sure. Maybe a Lieber and Stoller song. I'm not too sure. But he was riding high on the charts. And that was our first show that we ever did. We were extremely nervous and anxious. And what had happened was with Tab Hunter, when we met him on stage, I remember him, he was dressed in a, in a duffel coat and a pair of sand shoes. A, a good-looking fellow. Right then he was the heartthrob and he had major songs and two number one hits. And we were trembling in our shoes. And when we were introduced to him on stage, on the stadium show, he took our hands, took our hands and said, would you guys stand very close to the microphone? Because I have never done a live show before. And I'm not too sure I can hit those notes. And we all... We were so bewildered by this, this, this sort of uh, confession that it really threw us. Uh, but it was true. He hadn't done a live performance before. He was terribly shaky. He wasn't hitting the high notes. Didn't really matter because a lot of the performers found it difficult to hit some of those high notes that they did on recordings. But the reason it was because of the technical situation because we had no monitors. In those days, we had no monitors. You know, There was no monitors. All you were hearing were the front of house speakers coming back. But most of the noise, of course, was, was the kids making all this, this noise. So when they knew there was a, a big note coming or there was a big chord coming or whatever it was, the highlight of the song or the chorus, they would either be singing with you or they'd be screaming. So, um, so that, that was, again, it's an illustration of how remarkable those early days were. To cash in on the rock and roll craze, in 1959, the ABC launched Six O'Clock Rock. It was the public broadcaster's first show aimed at teenagers and it was presented by Johnny O'Keefe. The ABC weren't so sure about rock and roll, with the management of the TV station insisting that half the show be devoted to jazz. The Deltones were regulars on the show, and it gave them nationwide exposure. We'd do our songs, and then we'd stay there and do some backups for Johnny. Look, that show was, <laughs> I mean, talk about raw. That was an incredible show to be on. So, so different from Bandstand. And it was short-lived, you know. It wasn't on there all that long. It was only on for a few years where Bandstand lingered on there for... 15, 16 years. But certainly um, that show was just 
so marvellous to do. Also, there was some wonderful music coming out of there because Six O'Clock Rock on one side of the studio, we had all the rockers, and on the other side, we had all the jazz musicians. And I, I remember looking across at their, at their faces when, when some of the raw talent was, uh, was, was performing over on the other end of the studio, and they looked in bewilderment and wondered whether this was, was where music was going. And they had good reason to, to wonder because, uh, you know, it was going places. The record-buying public could hear the Deltones for the very first time when they provided backing vocals for Johnny O'Keefe's top five hit, Why Do They Doubt Our Love? When a boy like me meets a girl like you To fall in love is a thing to do Our love is true as the stars above Our love is true as the stars above Why do they doubt our love? It wasn't a record in their own right but they were credited on the label and the song proved to be a massive hit on the radio and jukeboxes. The rivalry between the two biggest stars in Australia at the time, Cole Joy and Johnny O'Keefe, was at times fierce. However, the Deltones found themselves in a tug-of-war of sorts between the two stars, and for the still-emerging group, it was a great position to be in. Yeah, indeed, indeed, because there was a certain rivalry back in those early days between O'Keefe and Cole Joy, in very much the same sort of genre split between um, you know the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, so so to speak. Uh, in this case, it was between O'Keefe, which was the wild one, and Cole Joy, Mr. Nice Guy, and it was reflected in their songs. And <laughs> and uh, but both of them were incredibly encur- encouraging for any any new artists that were coming up, and they'd already established themselves. However. Cole was very encouraging. Um, we sung on some of Cole's records, but I think both of them had an agenda. Both O'Keefe and Cole thought these guys will sound really good behind me. Um, so if I can add them to, uh, you know, to the, the DJs and the Joy Boys, I've got something going there. So this rivalry, we were sort of running between doing backups for Cole and backup for, uh, for Johnny. They were the two, uh, the two guys that, we were, we were mainly uh, sur- uh, involved with. But we end up gravitating because of his, um, his, I think it was his demand schedule with O'Keefe, just because he was on the move all the time. And we were just hanging onto his shirt tails. <laughs> and we knew where, wherever Johnny O'Keefe was performing, it was going to be a big night. And um, I think that that's why we ended up very, very much closer to Johnny than we did to Cole. While appearing on a national top five hit was a great start to their recording career, the first standalone single by the Deltones was a reworking of the Crows song, G. Johnny O'Keefe produced the single and it reached number 15 on the Sydney charts. And it was quite an eye-opener for us because what our expectations were, of course, that we were going to walk into some high-tech building, a recording studio. We'd heard about recordings. We'd seen the photographs from America about the studios and all, all these people with all this equipment and stuff hanging off the ceilings and, and microphones and cubicles and, and all sorts of things. But when we got in the studio, it, was a, it, was, it wasn't much bigger than a, than a phone box. And now, wonder they put the drummer outside in the, in the corridors in the office because you couldn't fit many more people than, say, four or five people in there at a time. Nevertheless, it had some semblances of a studio, but um, a lot of our stuff we put down fairly with one or two, maybe maybe three, four takes, maybe, um, at first. And um, 
and uh, Keith, uh, I remember recording with Johnny on a few of his tracks. We did Why Did Our Dad Love and we put Right Now and, and Shout and other tracks that we did. And I remember Johnny, when he'd do his up-tempo songs, the studio's lights were, were full up. When he'd do his ballads, he'd turn them down to, to soft lighting, you know, and uh, we would do that. But we'd always go down to the, um, to the pub between, uh, between songs and, and sometimes between takes, down to the pub on the corner there in Piemont and have a few drinks. And we'd come back to the studio, and boy, oh boy, that made a difference. Everybody was much more relaxed. And um, we got our best recordings out of those times with a few beers. It was very, very good. In fact, I'm sorry we didn't do that later on in our recording career. We should have done that all the way through, I think. It, it helped a bit. It helped. <laughs> As a group, the Deltones got to experience something that very few headline recording acts get to do. Their willingness to provide backing vocals for other performers saw them share the stage and witness some of the era's biggest stars in action. They performed with big-name American acts that included Lloyd Price, the Everly Brothers, Conway Twitty and Tommy Sands. Unlike the groups featured in the music doco, 20 Feet From Stardom, the Deltones forged their own career, but they got to stand 20 feet from stardom when rock and roll was in its most frenzied period. On the Lee Gordon Big Shows, the Delis would spend most of their night up on stage singing. We would we would go and, for example, onto the stage at uh, at the stadium, and we would go and do the we would open the the show with three three or four of our songs, and then we'd just stay there and stay there for the next two hours doing the backups for just about everybody that came on. So um, we were not only uh, encouraged to do our own stuff, but we're also in demand to do vocal backups for for all the stars at that time. Did a show with the Everly Brothers, which stick in my mind because they've been so influential on so many fronts to to a lot of them. Um, if you don't know the Beatles, or the Stones, or whoever you talk to, Chuck Berry, all all those people around, particularly the harmony singers. I remember remember the Everlys were so um, we couldn't touch them. They were almost like they had perfect hair, perfect look. They were so handsome. They had perfect skin. They had perfect suits. Perfect shoes that shone, and perfect harmonies above all. Perfect singing. It was just, and we were just—they were jaw-dropping to, to watch them perform. And we never got close. Never got within two or three meters of them. They were—they were just on, did their performance, and got off. When the Deltones' first single, "G," was released in June 1959, on the flip side was "Why." Well, that that song there was written by Noel Widerberg. He wrote "Why." And um, he didn't write it in response to uh, the, uh, the A-side, which was G. Um, it was just a song that he'd written, and he said, well, I- I'm not too sure we had the title. Perhaps that, that was the reason that we, that we put the three-letter three letter, uh, title on it, Why. Uh, but, um, yeah, it did. But you could hear the Diamonds, uh, the vocal group, the Diamonds' influence in there. 
um, who were major influence on the Deltones simply because they had the very same uh, voice structure as, as, as our quartet had. And I remember the start, do, do, do. Yeah, I remember the dancing, yeah. It, it, it was an interesting song. But I think it was interesting also when I look back that Weidelberg had potential of being a songwriter. And I'm sure we may have gone along in support of his songwriting. But in those days, it wasn't encouraged. Songwriting wasn't encouraged simply because the record company could say, well, we'll block this recording from overseas. It's having chart success and we'll just stop it and and we'll give it to one of our local artists to promote them in order for them to go on and keep promoting new records and new albums and keep our label up in the front. Um, So it, it, it is interesting for me that when Weidebuch had come up with some other songs as well, but they were, they were shelved, uh, not because they, were, they were necessarily uh, um, wouldn't work but, and they wouldn't get traction, but I think simply because it was far easier for the record company. When rock and roll first took off in America, Lloyd Price was one of the genre's big stars. One of the future Hall of Famer's most memorable hits was Personality. When Price toured Australia, the Deltones provided his backing vocals. One of the shows they did together turned out to be a night that they would never forget. We knew all about the success of uh, the personality man, Lloyd Price, and, and, and he's, he was very influential in, in those early days of rock and roll over there uh, on many levels. But we got a chance to do his backups, as we were talking about. And one night we were seeing personality, and he, he wasn't going over all that well. And he only had personality, and I think Lordy Miss Claudie, I think, were, were two of his big hits. But he hadn't had much. So the rest of his set, which was only about another 15 minutes, uh, the, the punters didn't know the song. So they were getting a little bit restless. And he knew that. And maybe a chant of We Want Johnny came up about that, t- that time. So, like a good, uh, like, a, like a pugilist, uh, he took a dive and he sank to the floor. And I, I remember him lying down there on his back, flat on the floor, and the crowd were up on their feet. And I thought, wow, I've seen Johnny O'Keefe do this. But I'll get back to Johnny in a minute. He, he did it much more colourfully. But I remember Lloyd Price looking up at Brian Perkins. Brian Perkins was looking over the top of him. And he opened his eye and he said to Brian, Brian told us afterwards, get me out of here. Get a doctor. And we sincerely thought he was, he was, he was ill. 
Anyway, is there a doctor in the house? They came down with a stretch and took him off stage. But we found out later on that it was he just took a dive. He said, oh, damn it, I'm out of here. This, this crowd's not warming to me. Now, <laughs> when Johnny O'Keefe did this sort of thing, it was quite a different story. Uh, Johnny would be singing Shout, and then he would, he would fall to the ground. And I think it was Bob Bertles, one of the, the horn players in his band, would come over and lean over him and, uh, and, and look up and say, oh, shake his head and, is there a doctor in the house? Of course, this was all set up. One of the crew or somebody would be have a bag, a doctor's bag, and a pair of glasses on him, come running down the aisle, and John would be lying on his back, and, and the crowd would be mumbling and murmuring and carrying on, and people, the young girls crying and sweeping. John's gone. He's got heart attack. What's happened? And this guy would lean over, and of course, the microphone would be on his chest, and then he would just let fly. Where off it would go, you know, and the crowd would just break up and just go completely nuts. But in the case of Lloyd Price, it was serious. He, he, he really just wanted to get out of there. He wanted to go home. The Deltones would also play a significant part in the sound of Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs, both live on stage and also in the studio. Just as Elvis was at his best when backed by the Jordanaires, JOK thrived on the sound provided by the Deltones. I don't want to confuse the timeline here, but as I'm about to talk about probably the Deltones' most famous recording, I just want to remind everyone that they had a couple of mega hits in their own right. Come a little bit closer. Come a little bit closer and you will see. Yeah, you'll see. I was meant for you, dear, and you were meant for me. Let our love grow stronger as the years go by. Let our love last longer than the stars in the sky. Hanging five. Don't forget tomorrow, you got another day, you gotta walk the plank, drive the hook, corner left and right, and keep it nice and tight. And now the time is drawing near, you're moving down the wall. Now steady as she goes, you got your toes up on the nose, and now you're hanging five, hanging five, hanging five toes. Up on the Malibu, up on the Malibu. Both these songs are regarded as bona fide classics, and we'll cover them in future episodes. However, arguably their most famous recording comes on a song that they don't often receive the credit for which they are due. The song I'm talking about is Shout by Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs. The group's contribution to this song is superb. The interplay and back and forth with O'Keefe is a key part of the song's success. The Wild One's growl laid over the driving sounds of the DJs is capped off perfectly by the delis. We're not going to play the full five-minute version of Shout, but rest assured, from the beginning of the song to the very end, the Deltones played a major role in one of the most famous and enduring Aussie classics of all time.
showing the level of respect that the Deltones had achieved, performing alongside the big-name American stars. When touring with Tommy Sands, they were invited by two members of his band to record with them, guitarist Scotty Turner and drummer Hal Blaine. Unbeknown to the still-wet-behind-the-ears Deltones, the Americans turned out to be two of the most influential session musicians of all time. Scotty Turner was associated with Buddy Holly, Willie Nelson, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, Waylon Jennings and Harry Nilsson. One major link Turner has with Australian music is he wrote the JOK classic, She's My Baby. Hal Blaine is perhaps the most successful drummer of all time. He was a member of the famed studio band The Wrecking Crew. He played with everyone from Elvis to the Beach Boys and his drumming can be heard on many of the Motown hits. In all, he played on more than 150 US Top 10 hits, including 40 of which claimed the number one spot on the Billboard charts. And that's just 40 number ones in America alone. Throw in the rest of the world and, yeah, you can see why the Deltones entering the studio with these two musicians should have been treated as the big deal it was. The single released from this recording session was Little Miss Heartbreak. Unfortunately for the group, the song turned out to be a classic that never was. Somehow, it received zero airplay by the radio stations and therefore most punters had no idea it had even been released. Sadly, the song sank forever, mostly without a trace. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so that was Scotty Turnbull and Hal Blaine, uh, who were working with Tommy Sands, and we were doing Tommy's backups. Um, we had no idea who Scotty Turnbull was or Hal Blaine. Hal Blaine, of course, was, was the drummer of the Wrecking Crew and played on Elvis records. He's played on just about every pop star that was coming out of America and Motown star. He, he, he was a star in him, himself. Anybody can dial Hal Blaine in on YouTube and just see what a mega star he really was on the drums and how influential he was in all those early records, particularly with Elvis. I mean, he, he, he was the drummer of the time. And here he is out here working with Tommy Sands. The Deltones are backing up Tommy Sands. We don't know who Hal Blaine is. He's come out here during his lunch hour to do a sort of a tour with, come and have a look at Australia and have a bit of a holiday as well. And there's Scotty Turbill, one of the great guitar players and great session players. And Scotty wrote a couple of songs and said to the Deltones, would you like to record these songs? And we said, sure, why not? Why not? And they arranged it all. And off we went into the studio. Um, and we did it. Hal Blaine played brushes on the, on the thing. He didn't get into his full kit. He just played on a snare with brushes and a little little cymbal. Uh, and Scotty Turnbull was there doing it. So there was just the two of them and a bass player. And uh, so we had a trio behind us. And we come up with it with a song which was not terribly Deltonish, but I think these guys were looking for. I really do think they were looking for a demo. Take this back on the hope that one of their pop stars and their label would would probably do it. I don't know. We never got to the bottom of it. But we had the song. The song was called Little Miss Heartbreak, and um, it was an unusual song. And you could hear Hal Blaine whooshing away on those brushes of his on on, on his stare. And so. Um, it rocks along. Well, you can hear driving along with that, with the with the drums and guitar. Two great players. I cherish that record. I've got it there. It's sitting uh, right in my collection. Here's Little Miss Heartbreak. Little 
Lopez Heartbreak, will you settle down? Little Miss Heartbreak, stop your running around. I've noticed lately and it's plain to see. You're out of dating everyone but me. A little heartbreak just to give me one more chance. Little Miss Heartbreak, it's so plain to see. You made your mind up to get even with me. I see you out with my best friend. Telling everyone that he's the end A little heartbreaker just to give me one more Heartbreak, oh, since I've been gone Little Miss Heartbreak, how you carried on I think that you were putting on an act But yet I'm hoping that you'll come back A Little Heartbreak, let's start all over again Little Heartbreak, let's start all over again We've mentioned before how the Deltones got to perform and record with some of the biggest names in rock and roll history. However, they also recorded alongside country greats like Reg Lindsay and Slim Dusty. Here's the Deltones joining our King of Country, Slim Dusty, on his hit tune, The Whispering Bush. Now the youth cleared out, now the youth cleared out. from the one he'd slain, the one he'd slain. Through, the blazing heat. through the blazing heat, to stake his claim. But the drought was long, and the creeks were bare, and the gold they found is still out there. And now they sleep, they're in the sleep, and the whispering bulls their secrets keep, where no one knows, and no one sees, their bleaching bones lying neath the trees, neath the trees. While it would be no shame to play second fiddle to icons like J.O.K. and Slim Dusty, as we've already heard, the Deltones were far more than just backup singers. The group was at their very best when Noel Widerberg led the way. Here's their take on Yes Indeed. Yes, indeed. Oh, 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 o
The boys had chart success in Sydney a couple of times, and they'd become well known via the big show tours and also their many appearances on TV shows like Bandstand and Six O'Clock Rock. Despite their huge profile, the group still hadn't had a national hit. All that changed in January 1961 when they scored their first top 10 hit, You're the Limit. Tragedy struck on the morning of June 7th, 1962, when the Deltones' lead singer Noel Weidelberg was killed, aged just 23 years old. He died from head injuries he received when the car he was driving rolled on President's Avenue at Brighton Les Sands. Noel left behind a wife and young son. What a shock. Um, couldn't believe it. I remember uh, for the first time hearing about it, I was having a, f- a couple of drinks at the Robin Hood Hotel with my surf club mates. Um, one afternoon, and uh, and one of the guys come in, a fellow called Kevin Smith, came in and said to me, um, Dad's outside, he, he wants to see you. And I thought, why would he want to see me? Uh, uh, you know, a, a father, uh, 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 this guy's father wants to see me? What, 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 have, what have I done to deserve it? So, so when, he, when I came outside and he told me that uh, uh, Noel had been killed, I was, I was absolutely in shock. Um, so I just jumped in, just didn't go back inside. I just jumped in the car and I remember going down to, um, to his mother's uh, house and then we went to identify Noel. Um, and, uh, going through that period was just like, like a dream and nothing like this. It never happened, particularly, particularly, uh, you know, this was a first because, not only uh, was he a friend uh, and indeed a mentor uh, to the rest of, the, uh, of us in the band, he seemed to, to have, a, a, have, a, have a clue about what was going on more than we did. Um, but uh, it was just the sheer fact that of, of, his, of his age, you know, this didn't make any sense at all. But it, was, it, it did affect us all um, and we walked around in bewilderment for, for weeks and months after that. There were suggestions and innuendo in some sections of the media that alcohol or the rock and roll lifestyle could have been a contributor to the accident. However, that appears unlikely. Firstly, given Noel wasn't much of a drinker, and secondly, the accident occurred when he was driving home after spending the Thursday morning skin diving and spearfishing with two friends. Uh, I could say, from my point of view, that he was never a drinker, uh, to the degree that, say, I was, or some of my other boozy friends who <laughs> were, were, were really professionals, uh, where he wasn't in that class. So it didn't, 
it was never an issue uh, with us. There was never a question. Now, the subject of whether he was speeding or what happened, I can only t- what I heard feedback, which was from the other guys, and they weren't taking much notice when it happened. They were all yapping and chatting away, and I think perhaps this distraction may have been the key to what actually happened. But the, the rumour, I say, uh, because it's been bandied around for a time, that he was overtaking uh, a car. Now, whether that was whether that was legal or, or not, I don't know. Whether, whether it was a good idea at the time, I don't know. However, coming back in again, he oversteered, which, which seemed to suggest that that's the reason he hit the gutter and uh, the car either flipped or rolled or whatever. Um, so, so to this day, uh, we, we'll never know. In early 1960s Australia, road safety was a long way from today's standards and a majority of cars didn't have seatbelts. And even if they did, it wasn't mandatory to wear one. The fact is, though, if he had a seatbelt, it wouldn't have happened. There's no doubt about that. So this, this, this confirms this. I mean, that, that's one thing that came out of it later on, that if he was wearing a seatbelt, he wouldn't have left the car, he wouldn't have been thrown out of the car, and the car wasn't in that, that bad a shape that, that, that he would have... He, at the worst, he would have been injured. The other two, two, two guys got off pretty well free, so it suggests for sure that the seatbelt would have saved his life. One moment Pee Wee was sitting in a pub having a few quiet beers with some mates. He was riding high as one of the most recognisable pop stars in the country. The Deltones' latest hit single, Get a Little Dirt on Your Hands, had only been out for a few weeks and it was already racing up the charts. The critics and fans alike agreed that the song was the Deltones' finest recording yet. The radio stations had the song on high rotation and the grip had just appeared on bandstand. Things were as good as they could get. And sadly, one moment Pee Wee is sipping on his beer, the next thing his life would change instantly. Just 21 himself, he was now confronted with the heaviest scene of his young life. It is heavy, and uh, and I remember looking at Nolan and the fact that when they they pulled out the 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 slab on the mortuary and looking at Nolan and, and all he had was a, a bandage around his head. There was there was no marks anywhere, and the bandage around his head, of course, was was hiding where he struck the gutter and killed him killed him instantly. Um, the other other uh, two guys that were with him. Uh, two surf club members got out virtually unscathed. They only went into hospital for observations. Um, so, so it was mysterious, and I, I was even more bewildered when I'd left the uh, the mortuary because of the f- the fact that 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 he looked uh, uh, by any other uh, 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 appearances to be to be uh, asleep. Um, so. There was no, there was no, it wasn't grotesque or anything. There wasn't see someone that would have been mauled and mashed up. It was somebody who was just simply had a bandage wrapped around his head and there was no other visible signs of anything else except, of course, uh, the fact that uh, he was uh, deceased. He's gone, left the, left the planet. In most sections of the media, Noel's death was treated respectfully. The accident was just a young man who made a tragic mistake for which he paid the ultimate price. For the remaining three Deltones, the outpouring of emotion from fans was not a burden and actually helped them to grieve as best as they could. Well, it, didn't, it, it certainly no, it didn't add to the burden at all. And, and uh, no, it, it was a help. There was plenty of support around that time for us. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, I, I keep saying this, but um, it, 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 we were young. A surprise like that or, or, or a surprise like that 
the initial shock, it's, uh, I remember, I mean, we were just dumbfounded. and we couldn't even talk about it. I mean, we just all went our ways and, and, and just were contemplating, were scratching our heads saying, this, this, it was a certain unreality about the whole thing, you know. But, uh, but certainly it, it didn't hinder, no, the, 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 the whole, in a way, the nation did uh, agree. There was, uh, it was our first tragedy of this type. It made headlines. It was headlines. It was all, all over the place. So everybody knew about it. Um, but I think in those days, it wasn't the media sort of madness that we have today. So therefore, it, it was, everybody was respectful. And, uh, and so it didn't add to the burden. Noel's funeral was the sad and sombre type affair that goes with the death of any young person dying way before their time. The remaining Deltones, along with Johnny O'Keefe, acted as pallbearers carrying Noel's coffin. The four heartbroken friends had experienced many euphoric highs together. They'd become household names and performed to frenzied fans as a gang. Now, at the height of their success, they were united in grief, carrying their fallen mate to be buried. It was, a, it was a huge funeral, a, a monster funeral, because he had, we had two groups there that, were, that melted into one, which was the surf club movement, as well as the entertainment industry at the time. And all, all the big major names, all the big names from, from both of, of those arenas um, came together for that, um, for that, uh, that funeral. And, um, and Johnny O'Keefe, uh, bless him, uh, was there, one of the pallbearers, uh, along with the, the three other Deltones. Uh, and so the, there we were. An, another reason for for uh, for that uh, that tie that we have with Johnny O'Keefe to uh, to continue uh, in good stead right through history. He, he's been there. He was there right at the beginning. He was there with the loss of Noel Weiderberg. He was there after Noel, uh, right up to his uh, to his end, uh, which we were all sad to see. There was a period of time that we went through. Uh, that we did go into uh, hiatus. It was a short period, but it was significant uh, because it was that, during that period that the momentum started to build, uh, not only with the, uh, with the getting the tick from the uh, Weidenberg family, Niles, Niles family, but also from, from many of the people, uh, insiders in show business at the time. So why, why would you, this wouldn't be what Weidenberg would want. He would want you to carry on, carry on the legacy. The loss of his close friend and mentor certainly had a major impact on Pee Wee's life. However, it wasn't always in a sad or sorrowful way. One experience he had following Noel's death was a reoccurring dream. Rather than being haunted by the dream, he found some peace in his mate's passing. Yes, it was. And, and, and it was a dream that, that continued to, to re- repeat itself uh, for years afterwards. Um, I, would, uh, I would be uh, at, a, at a function or... or uh, a social of some sort, and um, it was, and it's coming back to me now because all of a sudden I would see Noel in the distance, walking through the crowd, and I would look, and and this this confusion would set in. I've been wrong all along. The guy is still alive. Here he is here, and then I I would I would chase after him, but <laughs> the distance between myself and the image of Noel. Uh, it didn't change. It just stayed the same distance away, and it would it would come up in all various circumstances. And even though it had, you know, one would imagine that would be sort of macabre or, or, or nightmarish, uh, it wasn't. It was just um, when I, when I would wake up, I would would wake up after this dream, and 
and I would think to myself, my God, you know, there's something. I mean, this this probably was uh, the birth of my my later interest in Eastern philosophy and, and, and Eastern uh, um, in Buddhism and and uh, and so forth, uh, and Vedanta and and uh, and Hinduism and stuff. Is that um, not so much about the dream, but about the f- the fact that um, that the feeling that it evoked out of me that uh, there is some sort of immortality uh, that uh, that is around and um, and so I, I think that always always remained a mystery to me and I haven't forgotten that to this day uh, that how important that was to me and how I can I can go back to that particular era of when I was uh, 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 developing and trying to 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 imagine just what direction I would go in. And perhaps this was a sort of a, a projection of mine, uh, a, a, some sort of a guiding figure, if you like, uh, that would, because I, I you know, I, I really did really have a very close affection for the guy. And uh, because he had a certain, um, a certain personality that uh, was really attractive to not only to myself, but I know that a lot of people that were that knew him well were attracted to as well, and uh, to this day he's he's a very very important figure in my life. Get a little dirt on your hands would turn out to be the final song recorded by Noel before his death. The single showcases Noel's voice and highlights what a talented singer he was. Yes, the the last recording by Noel Widerberg, uh, and quite prophetically and. Ironically, you know that's a that's a cradle to the grave song, uh, written by uh, the country artist Bill Anderson. And Bill had uh, Bill's uh, had a distinctive country feel, where ours had a more folky feel. But it again, uh, it wasn't a song that that we figured was the direction we were were going in, which was more pop rock, rock pop, or, or, or rock harmony. I, I, it's harder to define the the genre really. Uh, Doo-wop would probably be the closest, and Get a Little Your Hands is not really a doo-wop song, so to speak, even though it has certain elements of that. But because it was a, it's a wonderful lyric, and it's a great song, and Widerberg does such a great vocal on there, wonderful vocal, heartfelt, and um, I think he had all the elements of, um, of that teenage sound that was around at the time that was, that was extremely absorbing, and, and, and it was absorbed, I should say, by, by uh, our young audience. Uh, but get a little dirt, get a little dirt your hands cross generations. I mean, it had it was bought by a wide variety of of people, and I think that song was poignant because a lot of people associate that song with 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 Noel's demise. Um, so uh, it is a very very special record uh, for us. And during, uh, in all the live performances we've been doing since that period, we've always put it into the uh, in, into the set and uh, pay tribute to Noel. And it's, it's remarkable that after the performance, people would come up and they would say very much the same thing as one would say would, when, remember when the landing of the moon or, or even the, the demise of JFK. They would say, I remember hearing that song when I was such and such or doing so and so. I just got engaged or I was at, at a party or I was at the stadium or wherever it might be when they heard of this. And so it, it was a, a milestone. And as the headline said, it was the first pop star tragedy in this country. When I was a little boy, my daddy used to say to me, son, 
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. A huge thank you to Peewee for your time and thanks to the Deltones for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend Holly Kirsten, Hit it girl! I've got something to tell you About a place that I've been to And now, now I know The world is so much wider Than I knew And I wanna let you know You gotta throw away
Take